So if you remember, James is the half-brother of Jesus, uh, likely the, uh, one of the church leaders, if not the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Um, and he's writing to believers who have been scattered among the nations after the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. Um, keep your finger in James and turn with me to Acts chapter 7, end of Acts chapter 7. The end of Acts chapter 7, we we've have the story of the stoning of Stephen. And just at the end of that, um, it says in verse 60, it says, And falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's the context in which James is writing. Okay, so he's writing to believers who have scattered from Jerusalem. And in this letter, James is presenting a series of tests. Tests of genuine faith in the life of the believer. He starts off telling believers to count it all joy when they face trials of various kinds. Our faith is tested in the trials that come our way. We talked about this early on, about how the trials of life can become temptations when we allow our desires to master us, and temptation can then result in sin. On the other hand, James tells us that our trials can become great opportunities for testing, which produces steadfastness that causes us to become more like God, more mature in Christ. And so our testing, in James' opinion, is a good thing. And that's why throughout the course of this letter, he's presenting these tests of genuine faith, things that show us that our faith in Christ is true. So the genuineness of our faith can be tested in the trials that we face. And then last time, We looked at the next test presented by James, and that is our response to the Word of God. That's what he ended up uh, chapter 1 with. Calling believers to be doers of the Word, not hearers only. And so today today we're going to come across yet another test of genuine faith. And so would you read with me starting in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. 
If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. God, as we dig into this word today, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say to us by your spirit. And God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In these verses, James is warning against the sin of partiality or favoritism. That's what, I, that's what I'm gonna call it today. So I've titled the sermon, Faith and Favoritism. I wanna break this down into two sections. So I've got two points today. Um, that's it. Um, don't get too excited. It's not going to be that quick, but I have two points. And I, what I want to do, I want to break it down into two sections and look at this teaching on favoritism towards the rich in terms of two arguments that James presents here um, in re- related to faith. So in the first part, in verses 1 through 7, we'll look at the argument that favoritism contradicts faith. And then in the second half, verses 8 through 13, we'll look at the argument that favoritism breaks the law that people of faith follow. Okay, so we're reminded who James is writing to as again he calls them my brothers right off the bat. He said, my brothers. My brothers show no partiality, show no favoritism. Now remember too that this is not a generic term that he's using here. While James wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and while it is a letter that is timeless and for all believers, James was writing this letter to people that he knew personally. In all likelihood, these were his people, members of his congregation that were scattered in Jerusalem under the persecution that we read about in Acts early on. These are people that he loves dearly and that he is concerned about. One great thing that we learn here is that persecution and scattering did not cause the Christians to meet hesitantly or fearfully. It is evident from verse 2 that they were holding organized gatherings in the midst of persecution. The persecution they lived under uh, was tremendous. From Rome, from the Jews, from everybody, they were facing tremendous persecution and yet they gathered without hesitation, without fear. Although Christians were commonly persecuted by the rich, Um, Evidently, the gospel was also spreading among the rich as well, or else it would be unrealistic for James to suppose that a rich person would present himself at the gatherings, as he points out in the illustration that he gives here in verses 2 and 3. Verse 1 starts off with a very stern warning from James. He, He says, show no partiality, show no favoritism. This is a command. And if you remember what we said early on too, that This is one of 50 commands that James presents to us in this very short letter. James says, Show no favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, interestingly, uh, the structure of this sentence in the Greek is literally, Do not hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with favoritism towards people. In other words, Don't claim a faith in Jesus Christ and then show favoritism in your dealings with people. 
The two are simply incompatible, and we'll look at more of that in a few minutes. Let's look at the illustration that James gives us in verses 2 and 3. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or you sit down at my feet. And James Roberts walked in this morning and said that he he knew what I was preaching about today and he thought about wearing a nice big robe and rings all over his fingers. I think that would have been pretty funny actually. But um, This is an illustration that James is giving saying, you know, what happens if, if this is how you treat the people? If you, this is how you treat a rich person that comes into your assembly. This is how you treat a poor person that comes into your assembly. You're showing favoritism. Christians in this context were encountering the moral issue of discrimination. They were struggling with the relationship between the rich and the poor. And I think if we're honest, our society struggles with this just as much today as they did then. It's on this point that James draws his conclusion in verse 4. So when he gets to the illustration, to the end of the illustration, he says this, Have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James draws his conclusion to show that favoritism contradicts faith. Now this is something very interesting that I learned um, as I studied over the last couple of weeks. This verb that's translated made distinctions, if you have the NIV, it it uses the, the verb discriminated. Um, But this is a verb that's already been used once in this letter. Look back with me at chapter 1, verse 6. Back up to verse 5 first. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. With no doubting. It's the same verb there as what's used in chapter 2, verse 4 for made distinctions. The verb has, has already been used. And so he says the word doubting, doubting is that same word. And it's used in both contexts in contradiction to faith, in contrast to faith. Look at the parallels between the two passages. In one six, we're told to ask for wisdom in faith without doubting. In chapter 2, verse 1, James tells us to hold faith in Christ, in verse 4, by not discriminating. So the common idea between the two instances of the verb is that of division, which is the essence of judgment. That's what James is getting at here. Doubters asking for wisdom are divided internally because they hold doubts that are at odds with faith. Christians who practice Favoritism are divided relationally because they hold materialistic values that are at odds with faith. So doubters are making a distinction or they're making a judgment whether God will or will not give them what is needed. Christians who practice favoritism are also making a distinction or making a judgment between the value of the rich person and the value of the poor person. So the corrective for both of these is to be single-minded in faith, not divided. 
That's the message that James is trying to get across to his readers. We cannot be divided. We must be single-minded in our faith. So what happens when we show favoritism? We're going to come back to verse 5, so don't think that I'm skipping that, but look at verse 6. Verse 6 tells us that we dishonor the poor man when we show favoritism to the rich. We dishonor the person who, just like us, is made in the image of our Creator God. In verses 6 and 7, James provides some detail of how rich unbelievers are treating Christians. Let's just read those together. Verse 6 and 7. Are not the rich ones, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So James reminds his readers of three common offenses against them. And one, each one has a particular significance for people of faith. Firstly, the rich are opposing them or oppressing them, excuse me. The verb oppress occurs only one other time in the New Testament. And it occurs in Peter's message to, to Cornelius' household recorded in Acts chapter 10. That message begins with Peter's affirmation that God does not show favoritism. For Christ came to deliver all who are oppressed or dominated by the devil. God's impartiality is binding on Peter, who in that instance realizes that he must accept Gentile believers as brothers. Peter, along with many other Jewish Christians at that time, had been guilty of a sort of oppression of the Gentile believers. And James here is showing another side of the same principle. To show favoritism towards the rich is to join sides with those who perpetuate oppression. One commentator put it very strongly when he said that they have in fact sided with the devil against God. Secondly, the rich, James says, are dragging you into court. The exploitation of the poor is being carried out even through formal legal action against them. Now in response, James does not urge revenge by the Christians when a rich person appears in their assembly. But he does expose the senselessness of favoring the rich. As if their wealth made them more valuable in the kingdom. It should be obvious from their treatment of Christians that that is not so. And thirdly, he says, the rich are blaspheming the name of Christ. Their treatment of Christians is religious persecution. Harsh treatment is directed at the Christians explicitly because they bear the name of Christ. This is implied in the concluding words of verse 7, where the rich are said to be blaspheming the name. And that's literally translated here, it says, that has been called upon you, the name that has been called upon you. Bearing this name implied a relationship. Therefore, abuse of Christians is abuse also of the name that they bear. The rich are treating the honorable name of Christ as worthy of contempt upon those who bear it. And so, if Christians now practice favoritism, They are, in essence, agreeing. So James sees clearly how a partiality toward people, because of their wealth, treats their wealth as more valuable than Christ. It's unthinkable that that this should be tolerated in the lives of people who are believers. 
in the glory of Christ, in the lives of those who have faith or claim to have it. (coughs) So think about this with me. When we show favoritism to the rich, which I think happens all the time in our society, it can almost be seen as putting faith in their wealth and their status in order to advance, many times, our own status and standing. We love brushes with celebrity, and we're quick to share that with everyone. We want them to like us. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel important. We're all susceptible to this, and it's something I think we must guard against for the exact reason that James gives this illustration. As James says in verse 4, it causes us to become judges with evil thoughts. The details in verses 5 through 7 explain his argument that he's made to us in verse 4. First, James writes with a sharp contrast between the rich and the poor. Do you remember Jesus' warning Um, of how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He talks about this in Matthew chapter 19. And it was a teaching that astonished the disciples, if you'll remember that. James would surely have remembered this as well. Why would wealth have this effect? Well, James talks about this back in chapter 1. So turn back with me again. James chapter 1, starting in verse 9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What James, the implication here is that wealth can lead one to become poor in faith because it gives one a false sense of security. What James says in chapter 2, verse 5, makes sense in this context. We don't need to read this. Okay, let's just read that again with me. Um, Verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? We don't need to read this as a theological statement that God eternally elects all poor people because they are poor. No, James is observing that God does choose many poor people to be rich in faith and so to inherit the kingdom. And he probably has in mind the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5-7. through If you'll remember back when we first started James, I, I mentioned that James seems to pull very heavily from the Sermon on the Mount. He makes references to it quite often, and we're going to see that several times today. Here in verse 5, James reminds his beloved brothers, again, there's that term of endearment again, his concern for them, that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And James is using a very similar language here. James probably also has in mind the Old Testament tradition of God's care for the poor. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 18 says that he, God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. 
And James also probably has in mind the likely economic situation of his readers. Many of them may have been wealthy Jews living in Jerusalem. And when the persecution started in Jerusalem, it's likely that many had to leave much of what they owned behind when they had to flee. (coughs) Favoritism of the rich goes against the very heart of God. So favoritism contradicts faith. That's the first point. Secondly, this morning we'll see that favoritism breaks the law that people of faith follow. This is James' second argument. Look with me in verse 8. He said, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. In verse 8, James mentions the royal law or the sovereign law. The idea here is that this law is supreme. It is binding. The sovereign law is to love your neighbor as yourself. This combined with the command to love God summarizes all the law and the prophets. Jesus himself said as much in Matthew chapter 22. He said this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, neither James nor Jesus is telling us here that we should have some sort of emotional affection for ourselves. Okay, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, I want to read this to us. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to what Paul says. 2 Timothy 3, pretty strong words. But understand this, Paul says, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. So neither, I'll just say it again, neither James nor Jesus is telling us that we should have some sort of emotional affection for ourselves. No, it's clear, according to Paul, that self-love is clearly a sin. The command here is to pursue the meeting, to pursue meeting the physical and spiritual well-being of our neighbors with the same effort and concern as we do for our own physical and spiritual well-being. Verse 9 says that if you show partiality, you are committing sin. He doesn't beat around the bush. He just flat out says it. If you're showing favoritism, you are committing sin. Here James moves from hypothetical illustrations to reality. It's interesting here that the word if there in verse 9 is probably better translated as since which seems to indicate that this isn't just a warning not to let this happen, but he is addressing something that was actually taking place. When you come to verse 10, this is another reference to the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but 
fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Matthew 5.19, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, also another reference to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 5.21 and 22, He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Those who break the law in part are guilty of breaking the law in full. It's like hitting a window with a baseball or a hammer. That baseball or that hammer only hits the window at one particular point, but it will cause the whole window to shatter, destroying it. James calls the believers to live differently. In verse 12, he calls them to speak and to act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. This is the law of Christ, which he referred to back in verse 8, where he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to this from Paul in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He goes on to say, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit. Who dwells in you. Christians are set free from their sin. That is, we are forgiven and freed from the condemnation and dominion of sin. Now we are to live in freedom, forgiven, not condemned by God. And love is the natural fruit and the necessary evidence of being justified by faith. Love is the kind of law that governs us when we are freed from condemnation by blood and the righteousness of Christ. And we will be judged under this law of liberty. If we have not loved, we will perish because there will be no evidence that we are born again and justified by faith. If you claim to have faith in Christ and do not love 
The two are incompatible. They don't work. So you can see that James and Paul as well in Galatians put favoritism in the context of your eternal judgment. And this is not a light thing. How we treat others is the evidence of our relationship with Christ. If we've been set free from sin's condemnation and dominion by Christ, then we live in liberty. And in this liberty, there is a law, the law of liberty. That is the law of love. We will be judged under this law. And this law says, do not show favoritism. And so James closes this section with verse 13. He says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And here we find another reference to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. A person who shows no mercy for people in need shows that he has never responded to the great mercy of God. On the other hand, the person whose life is characterized by mercy gives genuine evidence of having received God's mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So there's yet another test of our faith. Do we show favoritism towards people? So let's sum this up. The main point that James is making in this passage today is this. Verse 12. Speak and act or live as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. How do we do that? More specifically, we love our neighbors as ourselves. That is the royal law. Even more specifically, to do that, we must not show favoritism towards people because of wealth, race, or any other reason at all for that matter. I want to close by reading a portion of a commentary I read this last week, and then I want to share a short story. This is what the commentator said. The application of James's message should be made explicit by the church today, certainly in regard to the materialism that results in economic favoritism. However, as James presents the issue in more general terms, in chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, the applications broaden. The racism that results in ethnic bigotry is an obvious area, area for application today. But there are others. Favoritism is the sin of extending special favor to some people for self-serving purposes. And we have a multitude of ways to be so polluted by the world. We experience poor substitutes for Christian friendship all week. And it is hard to change our patterns when we gather with other believers at church. We learn to treat relationships as merely opportunities to get business done. Then we come to church and waste our Sabbath rest getting church business done. Instead of making contact with fellow Christians in love and then experiencing worship as celebration, we take care of self-serving agendas. Professionalism pollutes our friendships We work in contexts that honor self-motivation, self-reliance, achievement, and success. That context pulls us with tremendous force. 
We learn to impress others with our success. And we become attuned to the marks of success in others. We learn to size people up by the way they speak, the way they dress, the way they act. We also subject ourselves to our standards of favoritism and so inject our fears and insecurities into relationships. We abhor exposure of our failures and weaknesses. We are internally driven to compete and outdo. All of this is favoritism in modern dress. The result? Self-serving relationships. The heart of favoritism. It pollutes the church. It keeps the church from being a fellowship of love in which our lives are refreshed and healed by the taste of God's love in each other and by a wonderful celebration of God's love in real worship. James has shown us the solution to our problem of self-serving relationships. It is to bring our relationships under the government of the royal law. Douglas Webster captures the biblical vision excellently in his chapter on this passage. He says the church should be a competition-free zone where instead of courting one another's favor, we rejoice in God's favor. Instead of maneuvering for the best possible advantage, we give ourselves to one another for the sake of Christ. How we need to recognize today that it is sinful to think that we are better than someone else and to look down upon others. It does not matter who they are. Before God, they are all on the same plane as we are. We are all sinners and need to come to the cross and accept Christ as our Savior. I'm going to share this story that I read this week. It was in London, this is back in the early 1800s, when a great preacher by the name of Caesar Milan, no relation to the dog whisperer, Uh, was invited one evening to a very large and prominent home where a choice musical was being presented. A young musician thrilled the audience with her singing and playing, and when she finished, the evangelist threaded his way through the crowd which was gathered around her. When he finally came to her and had her attention, he said, Young lady, when you were singing, I sat there and thought how tremendously the cause of Christ would be benefited if you would dedicate yourself and your talents to the Lord. But, he added, you are just as much a sinner as the worst drunkard in the street or any harlot on Scarlet Street. But I am glad to tell you that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, will cleanse you from all sin if you will come to him. In a very haughty manner, she turned her head aside and said to him, you are very insulting, sir. And she started to walk away. He said, lady, I did not mean any offense, but I pray that the Spirit of God will convict you. Well, they all went home, and that night this young woman could not sleep. At two o'clock in the morning, she knelt at the side of her bed and took Christ as her Savior. And then she, Charlotte Elliott, sat down and while sitting there wrote these now famous words. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am in waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within without, O Lamb of God, I come. And then the final stanza. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. 
Because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. Here's one last thought for us today. I was listening to the radio this week and, you know, just thinking back over 2019 and a new year coming and people on the radio were talking about a particular verse and I want want to read it for us. Um, From the prophet Jeremiah, he was, the word of the Lord came to him concerning the sin of Judah. Chapter 17, verse 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, this is not a verse that you'll probably ever find on a coffee cup. But if we pause to meditate on this verse, I think we begin to realize that this verse explains us. It explains me. As much as I want to get it right, I just can't. And as much as I want my motives to be 100% pure, they're just not. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says the heart is deceitful above all things. And then he asked the question, who can understand it? The answer to that question is that only God can understand the heart. And the amazing thing is that God knows the depths of my heart, and yet he doesn't recoil. Can I plead with us? Can I plead with you? Don't follow your heart. That seems to be the message that the world just throws at you. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. No. Don't follow your heart. He tells us that the heart is wicked. It's deceitful above all things. Don't follow your heart. Follow God's heart. Trade your heart in today for God's heart. Let God replace your heart with His and follow that heart. As we turn the chapter into a new year on Wednesday. Might that be what we do this year? We give up our dreams to follow God's will for our lives. That we lay down our wants for His will That we stop following our hearts which are deceitful and will lead us astray and we follow his heart which is true and faithful. Let's pray.